This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code SPOTIFY at checkout. Quote, When Shakespeare died in Stratford, it was not an event. It made no more stir in England than the death of any other forgotten theater actor would have made. Nobody came down from London. There were no lamenting poems, no eulogies, no national tears. There was merely silence and nothing more. A striking contrast with what happened when Ben Johnson and Francis Bacon and Spencer and Raleigh and the other distinguished literary folk of Shakespeare's time passed from life. No praiseful voice was lifted for the lost Bard of Avon. Even Ben Jonson waited seven years before he lifted his. So far as anybody actually knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon never wrote a play in his life. This brutal quote about playwright and poet William Shakespeare came from none other than author Mark Twain in 1909. Twain was not alone. In fact, he was in the dignified company of Walt Whitman, Charlie Chaplin, Helen Keller, Sigmund Freud, and Henry James. If they and others like them dating back centuries are correct, William Shakespeare was not the greatest playwright to ever live. In fact, he never wrote a single play. But if that is true, then who is responsible for such works as Hamlet, Macbeth, or Twelfth Night? And how did their literary accomplishments end up credited to a common actor? What was William Shakespeare's secret? 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. Well, neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the conspiracy of William Shakespeare's authorship. Theater as we know it wouldn't exist without Shakespeare's plays. In his lifetime, William Shakespeare, lovingly called The Bard, wrote at minimum 37 plays, 154 sonnets, and two long narrative poems. At least, that's what some historians think. Others believe that the only words Shakespeare ever wrote were, by me, William Shakespeare, on the covers of plays he stole from others. This week, we will be covering the official story of William Shakespeare's life. His rise from humble beginnings in Stratford-upon-Avon to the greatest playwright London has ever seen. Next week, we will look at some theories that claim it might not have been Shakespeare who wrote such treasured plays as Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet. William Chambers, a wheelwright in Stratford-upon-Avon, awoke one morning in 1552 to find that someone had left a dunghill in front of his home. A dunghill, or a heap of refuse and household trash, was a common sight at this time, as there was no sewage system or trash removal. What wasn't common was to leave one near your home or the homes of others. Chambers learned who the two men that had left it on his doorstep were and went to the town council to have them charged a fine of one shilling. One of the culprits was named John Shakespeare. This fine is actually the first known record of one John Shakespeare, father of William. The record was from the town of Stratford-upon-Avon, where William was born. This act of vandalism wouldn't be John Shakespeare's last run-in with the law. In 1558, Queen Elizabeth I began her reign and made Protestantism the state religion. John Shakespeare had been a Catholic all his life. While he never publicly spoke of his Catholic faith again, he racked up fines for the rest of his days for not attending the mandatory Protestant services. John rarely paid these debts, perhaps as covert loyalty to the Catholic Church. Over a century after his death, a Catholic prayer book written by Sir William Catesby was found hidden in the rafters of John Shakespeare's house. This suggests that the Shakespeare's, including William, would remain quiet Catholics throughout their lives. 
Although John Shakespeare began his career as a glove maker, he would go on to hold several jobs, including ale taster and even alderman for Stratford-upon-Avon. His general aim in life seemed to be upward mobility, which probably encouraged his decision to marry his landlord's daughter, Mary Arden, a woman above his social standing and who had brought with her a handsome dowry. There are no records of a wedding between Mary Arden and John Shakespeare, but it would have been before they welcomed their first child, Joan Shakespeare, in 1558. Unfortunately, neither Joan or her sister Margaret lived past a year. John and Mary's third child, William, was the first to survive infancy. William was baptized on April 26, 1564. Because of the high infant mortality rates, the rule at the time was to have your child baptized the Sunday after their birth. So the known date of Shakespeare's baptism leads most historians to identify April 23, 1564 as his assumed birthday. William would have been eligible to study for free at King's New School in Stratford, as his father was, at this point, on the town council. All members of the council could send their sons to this school for free, though no registers survived to show that William did, in fact, attend this or any other school. But the people of Stratford took school seriously, even paying for the schoolmaster's housing. So it is easily assumed that William Shakespeare attended school while growing up in Stratford. It's likely that Shakespeare was taught to read and write Latin, though his friend Ben Johnson later said that William knew small Latin and less Greek. If William did in fact attend school, he would have likely left by the young age of 15. Well, this is because when Shakespeare was a teenager, his father John left public office. The reasons are unknown, but it was the beginning of a financial decline for the family. The Shakespeare's started selling off the land that they owned. Young William would have been expected to begin working to help the family's finances. While the lack of real school records from this time make it impossible to determine whether Shakespeare actually finished his schooling, it's not difficult to assume he may have had to abandon his education in order to help earn money for the family. If this is true, then it would make up one of the first points that lead people to suspect Shakespeare's authorship. Could a man who never even finished his education really be responsible for some of the finest works in the English language? But though he may have lacked a formal education, Shakespeare's work life would have exposed him to a number of opportunities to learn about the ways of the world. Historians have assigned Shakespeare several possible jobs, many of which would account for the vast knowledge of trades shown in his plays. Perhaps he was a butcher, perhaps a doctor, or perhaps one of the other professions he seemed to know in and out, a lawyer, soldier, sailor, nobleman, falconer, the list goes on. But even if Shakespeare held one or two of these jobs during this time, he could have never held all of them in his lifetime. Someone of Shakespeare's suspected prominence in the theater and literary world would have normally left behind a sizable library. However, this was not the case for Shakespeare. While historians can search for biographical clues in the more than 200 books that survive from the libraries of his friend Ben Jonson and fellow poet John Donne, 
there are no books linked back to Shakespeare to shed light on the kind of life he led in his adolescence. No matter what his profession really was, we know that in around 1582, 18-year-old Shakespeare met and married Anne Hathaway, a woman eight years his senior. This was unusual for the time, as the purpose of marriage was to have children, and therefore most men sought out younger wives. But having children proved to be no problem for William and Anne. A mere six months after their marriage, their first daughter, Susanna, was baptized on May 26, 1583, in Stratford-upon-Avon. Well, the timeline between their wedding and the birth of their child gives us a strong clue as to why they were in a rush to get married. At this time, it was not uncommon for the bride to be already pregnant on her wedding day. But unfortunately, the historical record would seem to indicate that William and Anne didn't have much of a bond beyond the children they shared. Today, historians considered the marriage to be a relatively loveless one, as evidenced by the fact that Shakespeare soon after relocated to London and kept little contact with his family. The birth of his children marks what historians now call the lost years in Shakespeare's life. All that is known is the dates his children were baptized, Susanna on May 27, 1583, and later his twins, Judith and Hamnet on February 2, 1585. Anything after that is speculation until we see his arrival in the London theater scene in 1587. And even the years after that are somewhat murky, with no solid proof of Shakespeare's activities until the publication of a scathing review of one of his works, likely Henry VI or Comedy of Errors in 1592. Why did Shakespeare leave his family behind? What was he yearning for? Money? Fame? Or did he simply catch the acting bug and relocate to London, where live theater was in the midst of a massive boom. Coming up, we will discover how a spot became open in the Lord Chamberlain's men through the murder of William Nell. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, back to the story. William Shakespeare left his family in Stratford-upon-Avon to move to London between 1587 and 1594. Shortly before Shakespeare arrived in 1587, a drunken brawl broke out between two members of the Queen's men, John Town and William Nell. 
Well, the reason for the fight is lost in history, but William Nell drew his sword and rushed John Town, backing him into a corner. It would be the last thing William Nell ever did. Town drew his iron blade and plunged it into Nell's neck. Nell died at the hand of his fellow actor. His passing left an opening in the theater troupe, and it's thought the bard joined in his place. Shakespeare's plays often use death as catalysts in the lives of other characters, and it would seem that in real life, his opportunity to become an actor and later a playwright only came about due to a sudden, violent death. However it happened, we know that Shakespeare found himself in London sometime after that fight. The journey would have taken him four days on foot, and he probably smelled London before he saw the tall religious buildings and the ominous tower in the distance. London had, unfortunately, become famous for its stench of sewage and was just as full of rats and their fleas as it was people. The London theater scene, though not considered high art, was blossoming when Shakespeare arrived at the city. Writer Christopher Marlowe was the Queen's favorite and the top playwright of the time with such plays as Dr. Faustus and Edward II. Much like Shakespeare, his actual years spent writing were short, but he was a prolific and skilled artist. Shakespeare first began acting at a theater which was called The Theater, home to the Lord Chamberlain's men. The theater was just outside London and was run by James Burbage. Well, Shakespeare likely started as a very low-ranking member, possibly even a stableman of the theater and the Lord Chamberlain's men. This job consisted of caring for the horses that theatergoers rode to the plays. He was, for all intents and purposes, a 16th century valet. He would have then moved up to prompter, giving lines to actors as they needed them. Eventually, he would have been promoted to understudy, which entails playing a role if the main actor is unable and eventually a member of the troupe. Being a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men would have been quite the accomplishment for the young Shakespeare. This troupe regularly performed for Queen Elizabeth I. The queen loved the theater and one defining aspect of her reign was the uptick in theatrical productions, which was quite a change from the other Tudor reigns. As such, Shakespeare, as an actor, gained a level of access to members of the royal court that would have been unprecedented for a commoner. Shakespeare likely began writing during his early years performing with the Lord Chamberlain's men. Being among actors and writers gave Shakespeare plenty of inspiration and not all of it good. Shakespeare's early writings were said to be inspired by the works of Christopher Marlowe, though it's something of a muddled line between what was inspired and what was outright copied. This copying of work was not uncommon for the time, as there were no copyright laws, and therefore any written word could be claimed and used by anyone. Shakespeare himself used parts of already written works to inspire his plays. His specific connection to the writings of Marlowe would help later cement the theory that the two men were rivals. Shakespeare made his public debut as a playwright in the summer of 1592 with Henry VI at the theater. While this was the first play of Shakespeare's that was performed, it's speculated that it was the fifth he'd actually written. 
Henry VI likely competed with Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta, as the two shows ran at the same time. To the surprise of most in the London theater scene, Henry VI was a smash hit and brought in larger crowds than Marlowe's play. The initially scheduled run of five shows was expanded to 15. By the end of that summer, Shakespeare's debut had been seen by over 10,000 cheering Londoners. Well, at that time, most public plays were either mysteries or droll morality plays. Before Shakespeare arrived, Marlowe was really the only person who was working on tragedies or histories. As a favorite of the Queen, Marlowe regularly enjoyed the best spaces, the best publicity, and the best crowds. Shakespeare took a page out of Marlowe's book, somewhat literally, and began to have his own run of success in histories and tragedies. Soon after the success of Henry VI, Shakespeare wrote parts two and three of the play, both of which were similar hits with the London crowds. There is one thing to note here. Authorship wasn't widely publicized at that time. So even though audiences knew that they really enjoyed the Henry VI plays, they likely didn't know the name of the man who wrote them. But in 1593, we see what is likely the first written reference to Shakespeare by name in reference to his playwriting. Robert Greene, a fellow playwright, died of syphilis in that year, and as he expired, he wrote his final words. A warning to Marlowe and other writers against this young upstart. Quote, There is an upstart crow, beautiful with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute, Johannes Factotum is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country. In this passage, Green refers to Shakespeare as the upstart crow or new kid. Green was asserting that William Shakespeare seemed to think he could write with the best of them. He refers to blank verse, a form of writing that both Marlowe and Shakespeare used frequently. The phrase Johannes Factotum was a negative term used in this era for a jack-of-all-trades, but master of none. If Shakespeare was affected by Green's scathing review, there's no record of it. But we do know that he was affected by another major event that occurred in 1593. London was hit with a devastating plague. Although this specific plague would ultimately kill tens of thousands of people, Shakespeare actually seemed to benefit from the outbreak. Theaters all over London were closing to help stop the spread of disease. William took the extended break from acting and writing to develop his hand at long-form poetry. It would seem that, during this time, he acquired his first patron. The patron was 19-year-old Henry Risley, 3rd Earl of Southampton, who paid Shakespeare for his writing and was seemingly the subject of Shakespeare's early poems. Shakespeare's first poem, Venus and Adonis, was printed by his friend Richard. The poem had nine reprints in Shakespeare's lifetime. His second poem was The Rape of Lucrece and was printed in 1594, again by Richard Field. Both of these poems were dedicated to the Earl of Southampton, the only evidence remaining that he was indeed Shakespeare's patron, though it seems unlikely that the relationship lasted much longer since the Earl was not mentioned in later poems. 
The connection between Shakespeare and Risley is a subject of some debate that will play into our later discussion about Shakespeare's authorship. But right now, the bigger question is, why did Shakespeare part ways with one of the first men to support his writing? There are rumors that Shakespeare had managed to contract a sexually transmitted disease. If that was the case, and if it was public knowledge, then the Earl would have likely wanted to distance himself from his unclean friend. It also could have been Shakespeare himself who severed the connection due to a scandal in the English court. It was a poorly hidden secret that the Earl was in the process of courting Elizabeth Vernon, the Queen's maid of honor, despite the fact that he was already betrothed to Lady Elizabeth de Vere, daughter of the 17th Earl of Oxford. Well, naturally, the Earl wasn't too keen on the idea of his daughter's betrothed stepping out on her, and Henry's indiscretion was the talk of court, and likely threatened to ruin Shakespeare's own budding reputation if the patronage continued. Shakespeare's mysterious relationship with Henry Risley would later come to play into theories about the real author of his works. But for now, what we know is that Shakespeare went back to playwriting in 1595, after the plague had subsided and the theaters reopened. One of the first plays Shakespeare wrote during this time was Romeo and Juliet, which debuted around 1595 and is arguably the most well-known of all of his plays. Romeo and Juliet was a great success, as was his follow-up, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which debuted around the same time. The queen herself requested the play be performed at the royal wedding of the Earl of Derby to Lady Elizabeth de Vere, the woman Risley had rejected. Shakespeare only became more and more prolific as 1595 went on. But even as he churned out master work after master work, the atmosphere of London turned sour. Following the plague, food was scarce and vagrancy was high. Riots broke out in the streets over the high price of food. Shakespeare himself didn't help the social situation. By the end of 1595, he had amassed a small fortune from his patronage and his playwriting. He used the money to invest in grain, which he hoarded and sold to needy people at a high markup. He only stopped after the queen made the practice illegal and slapped him with a heavy fine. Despite his success as an artist, it seemed that William Shakespeare had inherited his father's knack for racking up fines. This would also seem to signal a shift in Shakespeare's fortunes. In 1596, his only son, Hamnet, died at the age of 11, likely due to the plague. The tragedy prompted Shakespeare to do something he rarely did, return home. Shakespeare went back to his wife and daughters in Stratford-upon-Avon to bury his son in the Church of the Holy Trinity. Shakespeare was, by all accounts, devastated by the death of his son. As the 16th century came to a close, his grief began to affect his work and led him to darker subject material, most notably his tragedy, Hamlet, written around 1599. During this time of grief, Shakespeare also strengthened his relationship with his father and began to more firmly root himself in Stratford-upon-Avon. He bought the finest house in town, called The New Place, which afforded them a family coat of arms. 
what John's debt had done to squander the Shakespeare name, William's success had restored. The new place boasted 10 rooms, two gardens, and two orchards. Anne and their daughters moved in while William returned to London once more. In 1598, the Lord Chamberlain's men's lease on the theater expired. James Burbage, longtime head of the troupe and the owner of the theater, had been looking for a new home. He knew that it would be unlikely for the landlord, Giles Allen, to renew their lease. Even if he did, it was even more unlikely that they could afford his ever-increasing rent. Burbage died before he could secure a new location for the troupe. His sons, Richard and Cuthbert Burbage, joined forces with Shakespeare to appeal to Allen to let them stay at the theater. Allen didn't budge. The land was valuable, and with the hard times that were hitting London, few people had the money to see plays as they had in years past. The land would fetch a better price as something other than a theater. And Allen told Shakespeare and the Burbages that he'd boot them from the land, even if he had to pull down the theater and convert the wood and timber thereof to better use. This threat may have actually given Shakespeare and the Burbages their grand idea for what they did next. In December of 1598, the Burbages and several other actors in the troupe met with a carpenter named Peter Street. They didn't own the land, but technically they owned the building. So they tore down the theater plank by plank and took all of the raw materials over to a new plot of land. They built a new theater from the remains of the old one, a round, open-top theater which they christened the Globe. The Globe Theater opened in the summer of 1599 and was a near-instant triumph. William Shakespeare himself owned one-tenth of the theater. He moved right across the river from the Globe. The first play shown was, more than likely, his Henry V. The year prior was also the first time that Shakespeare's name appeared on the title page of a play. Or more specifically, it appeared on three plays, Love's Labor Lost, Lucrece, and Richard III. Before that, his name could only be found on his long-form poetry, so he was known mainly for his piece, Venus and Adonis. But even as Shakespeare's career was back on the rise, his personal life was falling apart. In 1601, John Shakespeare died. William returned to Stratford-upon-Avon to bury his father. His writing slowed after that, and soon he was only churning out one play a year. Shakespeare wasn't the only person who was slowing down. Queen Elizabeth I had long been on the decline, and all of England was on edge about the matter of succession once the airless queen finally passed away. The Lord Chamberlain's men performed for Queen Elizabeth one final time on February 2nd, 1603. She died six weeks later at the age of 69 after a 45-year reign. Soon after, her nephew was crowned King James VI. Coming up, we'll see how the death of Queen Elizabeth I and the crowning of the new King James VI affected William Shakespeare. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now back to the story. In 1603, Queen Elizabeth I died, and her nephew, King James, ascended to the throne. King James became the new patron of the Lord Chamberlain's troop, prompting them to rebrand themselves as the King's Men. Between 1604 and 1616, the King's Men performed at court at least 187 times and reaped quite a profit. King James was apparently much looser with his purse strings when it came to compensation. Even so, Shakespeare continued to pursue his tragic muse. After Hamlet, written sometime between 1599 and 1602, he wrote two more tragedies, Othello and King Lear. And every play, no matter how dark or dour, brought him more fame, more acclaim, and more money. By 1605, the middle-aged Shakespeare was quite wealthy. And more, his name began to carry significant weight among the artistic community. Due to his popularity, Shakespeare's name was being placed on plays he likely never even read. He was writing what is now considered some of his best work, yet his name was appearing on cookie-cutter comedies. All of this was perfectly legal in the early 1600s, but it has made it difficult to determine which works were actually written by Shakespeare. In 1607, Shakespeare wrote Coriolanus, Timon of Athens, and Pericles. These plays were so different from his others that historians speculate something must have happened to alter Shakespeare's spirits while he was writing them. There are words and phrases rarely used before, and Timon of Athens in particular seemed unfinished or of lesser quality, but the plays were still well-received. Along with the changes in his writing, there were also changes happening in Shakespeare's personal life. Shakespeare's mother, Mary Arden, died in 1608, shortly after the birth of Shakespeare's granddaughter, Elizabeth. Shakespeare, who now seemed to only return to Stratford-upon-Avon whenever there was a death in the family, went home to bury his mother beside his father. In 1609, printer Thomas Thorpe published 154 of the sonnets that Shakespeare had written for the Earl of Southampton. The sonnets were meant to be private and only seen by a select few. They were given to the printer by a Mr. W.H. His true identity is unknown, though a theory suggests he was Shakespeare's own brother-in-law, William Hathaway, which may have made the fact that Shakespeare was returning to live with his family even more uncomfortable. By 1611, Shakespeare had semi-retired to Stratford-upon-Avon, returning to court only when necessary. He oversaw the production of The Tempest, his final play and swan song. 
Other historical records indicated that he collaborated on two more plays before his death, but the extent of his input is a matter of debate. Shakespeare was in his late 40s and had his own half-pint mug at the local inn. It was a pleasant retirement. Susanna and his grandchildren lived around the corner of the new place, and Judith lived with him and his wife. In the 30 years since his marriage, it was his first time home with the family. In February of 1616, Shakespeare's youngest daughter, Judith, married Thomas Quinery, a vintner in Stratford-upon-Avon. Shakespeare reportedly drank so much at the wedding that he developed a fever from which he never recovered. John Ward, the vicar of Stratford, wrote in his diary, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Jonson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too much, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. This account is all we know of how William Shakespeare might have passed, but as a man in his 50s, he had already well outlived the average 17th century life expectancy of 35. Shakespeare died on April 23, 1616, at the age of 52. His epitaph read, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Just a week before this merry meeting and his subsequent death, Shakespeare had his will drawn up. He left most of what he owned to his eldest daughter, Susanna. To his wife, Anne Hathaway, he left his second best bed. It would seem that the long, loveless marriage was ending with one final dig from William. But what was most interesting about his will was what was missing, his plays. There's no mention of any manuscripts or who they should be left to. The most prolific playwright of the time hadn't left a single page behind. And this is where the mystery begins in earnest. It is possible that these manuscripts had already been left with a trusted friend. Or maybe William was more concerned with the well-being of his children than his artistic legacy. Whatever the reason, Shakespeare left behind a complicated history, one that has left ample room for conspiracies. Not even a century had passed before doubts were raised about whether the actor from Stratford-upon-Avon had penned all those beloved plays, or if William Shakespeare was merely a pen name. This practice was very much in vogue at the time to avoid a royal repercussion. Writing anything that could be construed as negative towards the crown could lead to death. Those close to Shakespeare, however, worked to cement his place in history. Eleven years after his death, the first monument to Shakespeare was built in Stratford, showing the bard with a quill pen in hand. To further his legacy, two members of the Kingsmen, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, spent years gathering together Shakespeare's writing and publishing them in Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies. This body of work is now known as the First Folio. Historians have started a posthumous manhunt to find Shakespeare's manuscripts. But to this day, the only thing we have in writing from William Shakespeare are the two words he wrote above the signature on his will, by me. William Shakespeare is thought to have written 37 plays, 
154 sonnets, and two long narrative poems. And the only words we know he wrote for sure are those two, by me. When our brain can't see the full picture, it begins to fill it in for us. This practice is called apophenia in scientific terms. Shakespeare's life is ripe with blanks and gaps for our own minds to fill in. This may be why we're so intrigued with him to this day, and why so many conspiracy theories swirl around him. Those who believe that Shakespeare the actor wrote the plays, known as Stratfordians, tend to look at his works to find clues about his life. Those like Mark Twain, who believe he was not the playwright, are called anti-Stratfordians, and look at where the facts come up short. It's been said that if writing plays was a crime, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict William Shakespeare of any wrongdoing. Next week, we'll look at the three anti-Stratfordian theories about the true authorship of William Shakespeare's plays. Keep in mind that there are hundreds of candidates, but we've done the research to weed out some of the more unlikely individuals, like Queen Elizabeth herself. The first conspiracy theory we will look at is that Christopher Marlowe wrote the plays under the pseudonym William Shakespeare after faking his own death. The second theory is that Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, wrote the plays while hiding in plain sight at the Queen's court. The third and final conspiracy is that a collective of multiple authors wrote William Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare himself was just the face of this anonymous group. What is the true identity of the world's most beloved playwright? The answer may come from clues left behind by Shakespeare's contemporaries, some of which still baffle historians to this very day. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Claire Linich and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 